Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Uh, Lord Jesus, it is a privilege to gather, um, despite all the things that are going on in our nation, um, despite all of the ways in which uh, the moment of our day provides prongs for our sinful hearts to grab onto and hold onto, whether it's in fear or in arrogance or in hostility or in worry, Lord, we understand that we need your word to be fixed deeper inside of us. Lord, um, at a time where, for a myriad of reasons, Um, There are people unable to fully gather together as your church. What we do know is that it's at times like this where our city and our world needs most clearly the church. And so we pray um, that individual Christians and church members across our city and across our world are able to carry this wonderful news of hope, this wonderful news that sets anxiety aside, this wonderful news that softens hardened hearts to places with winsome grace and with the love of Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So uh, if you guys have been watching news, which is generally all of us at this time, or being on social media, you've noticed the rise of phenomenon being called cancel culture. I don't know if you've heard about that, but the premise of this is, is that there is one orthodox worldview you must have. There's one worldview that you need to join onto, and if you don't believe that worldview, if you tweet or talk or act against that worldview, then you are liable to be canceled. And this 21st century cancellation is new, but this is something our world has done for a long time. And in the modern day, what this looks like is you get turned over because of your heretical views, you're not towing the line, not looking, not acting, not living like the consensus majority, you get turned over to the Twitter and the Facebook mobs and they give you red frowny faces on Facebook and they slander you, they boycott you, they shame you and ultimately they banish you from any sort of cultural influence without any hope of being restored. And cancel culture, what it does assume is it assumes a sense of orthodoxy. That there is a right standard of thought and practice and you are beheld to that. And those who don't conform to it must be punished. But what's interesting is you're seeing almost daily that there is some cultural pundit who on Monday is championing the cancellation of someone who is not towing the party line to wake up on Tuesday and to find that the same mob with which they once canceled somebody is now canceling them. There is this sense of paranoia that happens where every watched word is being judged, every action is being carefully considered, And it's this cannibalization of cancellation that leads people to just the outrageous, illogical ends of their arguments. People are progressing so wildly into camps that are just completely unreasonable, but they're progressing to those spaces because of fear. They know that from a worldly perspective, if all we're laboring for is the affirmation of culture and our acceptance by it, That if this cancellation threat, this muting of you and your person is real, then they need to make sure they're safe by pressing as far in as they can. 
And so when you encounter those things on Facebook or on the news, what you're really encountering is someone who is fearful. Someone who is acting out of a sense of paranoia that they would not be one who gets caught up in the cogs of history and spit out as one being on the wrong side of it. And it raises this question, can I ever be validated by this ever-changing cultural orthodoxy? Will I ever be found safely inside of it? Is there ever, will I ever know enough about this cultural flavor of the day? And is there a safe place to stand in the realm of acceptance when it seems the rule book is constantly changing before us? And we started last week Peter's second letter, Second Peter. And he's writing to churches and he is encouraging them to know and to act in accord with gospel orthodoxy. That's the orthodoxy that accompanies Jesus from scripture who comes to save sinners from sin. But contrary to any other worldview, the gospel holds a wonderful tension. It calls for conformity to the law of Christ, but it does so without ruling in paranoia. It challenges firmly with harsh borders and yet it does so with grace. And in a world of competing positions, Peter wants the church to see that the knowledge of God in the person of Jesus Christ is the safest place for you to be. It is a place where you can have confidence, where you can have hope, and you can have security. And what we're going to see is this doesn't necessarily spare you, that's why he's writing to this church, it doesn't necessarily spare you from culture's judgment of you. But what it does spare you from is from the only judgment that matters. And that's the judgment before the God of the world. And so our big point today as we look at uh, or Second Peter is this, that the knowledge of Jesus leads to Christian conduct and Christian hope. The knowledge of Jesus, what we know about Jesus, leads to Christian conduct and Christian hope. And we're going to look at this three ways. If you have your Bibles, you can open up. Hopefully you already heeded Paul and are opened to it. Uh, in 2 Peter 1, we're going to see this in three ways. We're going to see first, we're going to see the subject of Christian knowledge. And then we're going to see the fruit of Christian knowledge. And then lastly, we're going to see the hope of Christian knowledge. So knowledge is subject, knowledge is fruit, and knowledge is hope. And we're going to start, Paul just read this full text for us. We're going to read the first two verses, beginning in verse 3. His divine power, so that's God, that's who he's talking about in verse 2. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption of the world, corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. So I mentioned last week that Paul is writing to a group of Christians who, just like us, are full of knowers and full of feelers. And his goal last week was to take feelers and to help them know the truth of certainty that's in the gospel of Jesus. And this week, he's talking to the knowers. He's talking to those who like to know, and he's trying to get them to feel. So I said this last week, and my wife and I ran into it myriads of times this week. She's a feeler, I'm a knower, and we both need this same gospel to help us. And when it comes to knowing, Peter has now turned his attention to the knowers. And this is where he starts today. This is our first point, the subject of Christian knowledge. Last week, Peter talked to the feelers, and he said, if you want grace and peace, you must have the knowledge of God and of Jesus. He's pushing them to know. And now he's continuing that. In fact, 14 times in this short three-chapter book, 
Peter is calling Christians to interact with or to grow in their knowledge of God 14 times. If I tell you something 14 times, it's probably important. And so we should heed what Peter is talking about here. And while feelers might bristle at language of knowing, us knowers, we hear this and we begin to start salivating. Especially when it says in verse 3 that this knowledge has everything pertaining to life and godliness. You see, for Peter, this knowledge that he's talking about is an immensely powerful knowledge. It is a knowledge wherein you find everything you need to know to live right in this moment, but also to live right in light of eternal life. This is a comprehensive knowledge to know everything that's coming your way and to be able to respond rightly to it. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of knowledge in a world where everything seems to be changing? But unfortunately, just as the feelers need to check their emotions, Peter says that you knowers need to check your knowledge. Because as much as I am a knower, as much as I like to look at facts and things like that, I understand that there are errors that come with that. There are problems with that. And as I was thinking on this, and those of you who are knowers in here today, you can maybe empathize with me, uh, there are three wrong ways where we can view the knowledge of God. And I tried to boil these down in the, these three wrong ways. I call them one is exhaustive confession, the other is studious reflection, and lastly is self-affirmation. And knowledge in light of exhaustive confession thinks that in understanding the simple confession of the gospel, Christ died for my sins, that you have exhausted all you need to know about God. You can pass the orthodoxy Doctrinal exam, when you stand before heaven, you have those five code words. And because you have those five code words, there's really nothing else you need to do. You don't need to learn more about God. You don't really need to care about how you live in light of God because you have this secret code. And if you stand at heaven's gates and you whisper these secret codes to God, he is beheld to let you in. So that's exhaustive confession. And that's a wrong view of knowledge of God. And then there's my camp. These are the people who view knowledge as studious reflection. In contrast to exhaustive confession, these people, they want to dive deeply into the theological complexities and depth of theology. And when we read the text which was just read, here's a litmus test for you. Did these words stand out for you? Divine power and nature, calling and election, corruption and life, glory and power, knowledge and promise. And we see those, and we want to get them, and we want to dissect them, and we want to analyze them, and we want to trace the promises, and we want to understand the nuance of imputation and righteousness. But what can easily happen is we become the master in Scripture, the subject, where we become the authority over what it is that we are examining like a lab. And then lastly, there's those who equate knowledge with self-affirmation. They might cling to a simple confession, they might dabble in the depths of theology, but why do they do it? Simply put, because they want to be right. And the more they arm themselves with what is right, the better they are to tell you where you're wrong. The more they're convinced that they are right, the more weapons they have to leverage their own standing over those who might not know. The more they have this hidden knowledge which puffs up their standing in their own life. And here's the thing about each of these camps. In one sense, a lot of them have things that are right and true. For instance, Paul himself affirms the simplicity of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, when he says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance 
that I also, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's not complex. That is simple. But there is a difference between knowing that that confession of faith is the exclusive and key doctrine to Christianity and thinking that that is the exhaustive doctrines of Christianity. That is everything that gets us access to a world we'll spend the rest of our life exploring. The Bible is also, to those who are prone to self-affirmation, the Bible is true. The Bible is the right way on life. And how do we know that? Because it was written by the God who created all of life. Peter himself says in Acts chapter 2 that there is one name given among men by which you must be saved. That is the name of Jesus Christ. And yet the gospel cannot be an affirmation of your innate wisdom. Because the first thing it affirms is that he is God and I am not. That I have been bamboozled, I have been held captive, and I have been led astray by, this, by the chains and lies of sin. The gospel doesn't seek to affirm us that we are right and other people are wrong. And lastly, as Christians, we ought to realize that God deserves a sort of studious reflection. Paul in Romans 11 says this, Oh, the depths and the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. Paul's saying it is endless and we should seek to know it. We should examine it. We should be certain of it. Peter echoes the same thing 14 times in this book saying, know it, know it, know it, know it. And yet, it's easy to miss the forest through the trees, to become so caught up in the analysis of theology that we lose the God of theology. But this is where Peter comes to correct the knowers and to perhaps encourage the feelers, because what he's after is the subject or the source of knowledge. Look back at what this is in verse 3 of 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We are called to know him. The one who calls us to his own glory and his own excellence. The source of knowledge for the Christian life is Jesus himself. If we miss Jesus, we miss everything about the nature of our faith and the conversion, meaning the change that that faith gives to us. Because the truth is, the only way conversion makes sense, the only way that broken sinners can be justified before God, is by understanding that Jesus is everything that you are not. Jesus is perfect where we were imperfect. Jesus is faithful where we were unfaithful. Jesus is wonderful where we were met. And it's the nature of that Jesus given to us which makes him astounding and changes us as a result. You see, there can be no such thing as a Christless Christianity because there's no such thing as a Christless Christian. Because the only way you become Christian the only way you can know right truths about God the Father is because God the Son, Jesus Christ, has changed us to experience that. That's Peter's logic here. If we miss Jesus, we miss all of the relational goodness of God. Listen again to verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence. 
by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of the sinful desire. So don't miss out on what Peter is doing in this text. What he's doing in this text is calling you to understand the nature of your conversion. To a church that is anxious, to a church that is feeling pressured to abandon ship, he is saying, look at your conversion. Look at the real change that actually happened to you. Look at how you are remarkably different. He says, you have been called by glory and excellence. You have been granted God's precious and great promises. You've been given access to divine nature and delivered from the lust of sin. This is the mechanism of redemption. What wonderful transformative truths. That he has changed everything about us. But did you notice that each and every one of those wonderful transformations is connected relationally to Jesus? It is his glory and excellence which calls us. It is his precious and great promises in which we now share. It is Jesus who invites us to partake of his divine nature instead of the nature of sin. The essence of Christian conversion is the person of Jesus. And if we miss his wonderful quality, we miss his conversion. And we're left on the outside. I had a friend, um, I had a neighbor in you'll see why I make that distinction in a second, growing up, who had a PlayStation. And my parents didn't let us have video games at that time, and so I saw this as a wonderful opportunity. (laughs) If I were able to become friends with this impressionable youth, he would invite me over to his house, and there I could play PlayStation, Crash Dummies in particular. And so uh, it worked. I chatted with him, we became friends, Kind of, he invited me over to his house, and we played PlayStation, and yet it became apparent to me, and perhaps even to him, that this was no relationship at all. Whether he was there or not, I really didn't care. I just wanted access to his basement. I just wanted to play PlayStation. And he would perhaps want to play something else, and I'd say, I'm good. (laughs) But I wonder how many of us treat Jesus the same way. We want all of the things that he can provide for us. We want salvation, we want deliverance, we want excellence, we want goodness, we want conversion. But if possible, if you really asked us, if we could have all of those things without Jesus, that might be easier to take. Or Jesus is just a means to the end of what we've always actually wanted. But to lose Jesus to lose Jesus as the center of your understanding of how you relate to God and how you get those good and great promises is to lose everything. It is Jesus who by the nature of his excellence, depending on your Bible translation, it's translated as goodness or virtue, by the nature of him being spectacular, unrighteous people get to share in that. It is because of Jesus that he is able to take the earned wrath which we deserved and give us precious promises which we did not qualify for. It is because of Jesus that we have been saved from a futility of heart which can only and always desire what is broken. And instead it's given us divine affection. We participate in a divine nature from an emotional level being drawn away from the desires of the world and towards the desires of God. Jesus is at the center of all of it. And to miss that misses everything. 
Look at how Paul in Colossians 3 reflects on kind of the sum of life itself. I don't think I tapped it in here. It means I actually, it's like a Bible drill live in front of all of you. I did tap it. It's right there. Anyway, here we go. Uh, it wasn't half bad. Uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So I have a question for you as to how you relate to Christianity. Do you relate like this? Through Christ alone. You are not saved by doctrine alone. You are not saved by church attendance alone. You are not saved by morality alone. You are not even saved by righteousness alone. You are saved by Christ and his righteousness. He is now your life. To have that eternal hope is to have your life imminently tied to the nature of this wonderful Savior who took your sins and gave you his life. J.I. Packer was a, a theologian and an author who just passed away this Friday at 93 years young. He wrote an astounding book called Knowing God. And in it, he makes the point that the sum of the Christian life is to know God. He says this, he says, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the best thing in life bringing more joy delight, and contentment than anything else, knowing God. Man, what a wonderful truth that today, J.I. Packer knows that far more than he did on Thursday. That he is rejoicing in knowing God at a level unprecedented. And you know what he says now? That's it. So imagine, some of life is knowing God. And imagine you are on a plane and all of a sudden someone starts choking or having a heart attack or and, and someone uses the cliche line that happens in all the movies that I've never actually seen happen in real life. Is there a doctor in the house? Sure enough, someone raises their hand. They come forward and they start looking at this individual. And they begin to assess the uh, patient with a sort of obvious perplexity. They randomly start poking at the person. And it quickly becomes clear to everyone watching that something's not quite right here. So they ask this good Samaritan, like, hey, aren't you a doctor? And the person says, yeah, I have a doctorate in linguistic theory. We would find that even though that person knows a great deal of things about lots of stuff, the knowledge that person has is wildly ineffective for the situation at hand. It helps no one. Do you think that you are one, perhaps, who equates a knowledge of God to this kind of knowledge in a life or death situation? Where it is good to know, it's got a realm where it's helpful, but for most of life, it's impractical and unfruitful. The, or, the question that Packer asks in his book, which he masterfully uh, goes on to answer, and so if you haven't read Knowing God, I would encourage you to do that, is he, he asks this simple question. What do I intend to do with my knowledge of God now that I have it? In other words, what does knowing God in Jesus Christ actually change? And this is where we see our second point today. This is the fruit of Christian knowledge. 
The source of Christian knowledge is Jesus himself, but what does that produce? Read with me verses 5 through 8. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter here gives an imperative in the Greek. The imperative is supplement these things. Supplement your faith with this string of qualities that follows it. And we're going to see in verse 10, he's going to give another command, and that is that you ought to confirm your calling in election by practicing these qualities. And so in reading verse 5 through verse 11, we should make no mistake what Peter is after. Peter is after Christians living in a distinct way. He is after the actions and the conducts of the believers. And yet the root of what he is doing is what? Did you notice that? For this very reason, do these things. But what is this reason? It's everything that precedes it. For this reason that God's power has been made manifest in you. For the reason that you have been called into Jesus' glory and his excellence and his surpassing goodness. For the reason that you have been granted all of the yes promises of his good and great grace. For the reason that you now share in the divine desires of God and are no longer held captive to the world's sinful desires. In other words, everything that Peter is about to command finds its possibility in the conversion he just described. Without conversion, this is meaningless. With conversion, this is natural and assumed. In summary, he's saying that because you have been saved, changed, and delivered by such a king as this, then you ought to live as one changed, saved, and delivered by such a king as this. Jesus has given you everything you need to live as a convert by his grace. But Paul makes a similar point in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where he says this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Where do we encounter God's grace? It's in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both Peter and Paul are saying, in your salvation, in Jesus, in the work of conversion, which happens, right? That's implying you're not the same. Something changed. In that conversion, you've been given everything you need to live in a way that honors Jesus. You have everything you need for life and godliness, Peter says, to live the Christian life. In other words, Peter is saying that this knowledge which comes through an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ has an immense power that is relevant in your day-to-day lives. Knowing Jesus allows you to live in the strength that Jesus himself provides for you. And then Peter gives this cascade of qualities in verses 5 and 6. Another way he puts it, he says supplement your faith, but another way you can translate that word, which is more helpful for us, is to furnish your faith. If you've ever bought a house or rented a room or an apartment, you know that what that affords you is a room. And the very first thing that happens, it happens when I put my kids in a new room. It happens when you go into a new room that's yours. What do you do? You start to furnish it. You go to Target. You start grabbing things. 
You put it on walls. You put it in chairs. You're making it hospitable and livable for the wonderful future of spending the rest of your life in this room. And this is idea, the idea that Peter's getting at here. God has granted to you through grace in Jesus Christ a wonderful new home. And now you have the privilege of furnishing that home with the adornment of grace out of the budget that God himself has graciously given you in Jesus. Your resources to do this are endless. This is a multi-million dollar shopping spree to the designer store of your choice to adorn this house with the visible riches of grace. And so you as a Christian, what should you decorate your home with? What should it look like to live life in the confines of God's grace? Well, he gives eight qualities here. They begin with faith, and they end with love. And what Peter is really just trying to do is he's trying to build from this internal to external flow. And you could lump these qualities into kind of three specific categories. There are qualities in here that show a right understanding of God. There are qualities in here that show, uh, that show up in your own heart, in your own life. And there are qualities that care for others. And as each step progresses in Peter's logic... That conversion of Jesus becomes more and more visible to the world around you. In talking about our relationship to God, he says Christians are called to supplement their faith with virtue. And so that's actually that virtue is the same word uh, used for excellence earlier in verse 3. And so it's referencing Jesus. Your faith has, uh, you're called to have faith. You're called to supplement that faith with this excellence, this moral excellence of Jesus. And you're called to supplement that with knowledge. He is forcing you to examine so clearly the centerpiece of Jesus in your life. Do you see him as wonderfully beautiful and worthy of all of your life change? And then secondly, he begins to talk about your life. If you see Jesus as this, if you have faith in this excellent, good Jesus, and you know him to be wonderful, then your life should be different. You should be self-controlled. You should be steadfast. You should be godly. You must learn personally to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. And lastly, this fruit manifests itself in brotherly affection and love. And why is this so important? Because verse 7 tells us that if you do not have these things, or verse 8, excuse me, if you do not have these things, it shows that you are ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of of Jesus Christ. Those are harsh words. How would you like it if you took your, your boyfriend or your spouse on a date and afterwards they said, it wasn't so much that it was bad, it was just that you were wildly ineffective. Everything you set out to do just failed. That's the word Peter is using here. You have this knowledge of God and you are proving it to be ineffective. You are unfruitful in it. Peter's making it very clear here, to know Jesus in a saving way is to be saved by Jesus in a life-changing way. If you claim to know Jesus, but your attitude towards God is apathetic, you might not know Jesus. If you claim to know Jesus, and yet you ha- your life is typified by a lack of self-control or of venomous sins or by habitual errors going back and back and back to the trough of sin, it might be that you don't know Jesus. If you claim to know Jesus, but you don't love others, it might mean you don't know Jesus. 
And there's what we see in the latter part of this text is challenge is always coupled with comfort. And so the challenge is you might be ineffective here, but here's the comfort. God has saved you for a purpose. God has given you knowledge of Jesus so that you might be effective, that you might bear fruit. And maybe this is just uh, the fruit of me being uh, in my 30s and on either side of me. Are people still grappling to understand what is going on in their life? What is the purpose? I see that way on so many people. And here God has given you that purpose. That you might live in a way that shows others the wonderful transformative work of Jesus. Why are you here? To be effective to that call. God cares about every ounce of your life. Because every ounce of it is meant to display his beauty to those who are around you. My family went to Hawaii once when I was in college. And I remember we hiked back up to this kind of jungle pool. And, and way up high where you couldn't see was the stream that came. But then you saw it and it began to cascade down these rocks. And then it created this pool that was so big and so clear and so deep that you could actually jump off the rocks into it. And there's a very real way in which Peter's cascade of qualities is a lot like this jungle oasis. The fountain from which everything flows is faith in a God that this world cannot see. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 1. Though you do not see him, you love him. The world cannot see our God. And yet at some point, when our faith in God is true, it begins to spill over into our lives. It begins to cascade and put off mist as we seek to live our lives rightly. But then finally and ultimately, faith in God manifests itself in a pool of brotherly affection and love that is deep enough to invite others into. For those who might not see the source of our faith in God, they ought to see, they ought to be invited to come and swim in the love that comes from that source. That we are distinct in a way that refreshes and encompasses those who are around us. The true knowledge of Jesus produces a pool that blesses others. To claim to know Jesus but to present no visible fruit in your life is to be in a dangerous place. Look at how John talks about this in 1 John 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. What is he lying about? It's easy for us to think, well, he's lying about his brother. But that's not true. He's lying about loving God. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love the God whom he has not seen. To not love others, to not have brotherly affection, to not have any sort of visible pool that you can point to is to perhaps come to the conclusion that you don't love God. But here's the wonderful truth that precedes this. This is why the gospel is unlike anything else. Because that's not actually where John starts. Look up one verse, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he, does not, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love the God whom he has not seen. Just as Peter did in verses three and four, John now emphasizes that if you are a Christian, if you do know Jesus, you have been loved by God. Your bank account has been filled to the fullness to where you can spend it in love. You are not working out of a deficit. You have been loved by God to give away freely. If you are loved by the king of the cross, you will be able to do all these things by the power of the king of the cross. 
There is a wonderful promise for effectiveness in Christian living, despite how hard it might seem, despite how difficult it will be at times, despite how straining it might be in that moment. Christ has given you everything you need to do that because Christ himself has loved you if you have faith in him. You see, a knower like me often experiences anxiety and paranoia that comes with my disposition of fact-checking and analyzing. I know there are times where I look and I see the immense glory of God. I see the call to make disciples of the nations. I see that heaven and hell are at stake. And sometimes in the weight of this, I look at my own limitations. I look at my own ministry. And I wonder, do I really matter? Do I really make a difference? I understand hell. I see that punishment awaits the branch that does not bear fruit, and I feel crushed under the weight of it, and I wonder if in striving for acceptance, I might find myself one day canceled by Jesus himself. But this text offers a wonderful comfort and challenge, and it says, look. Look at your life. Are you loving others? Out of the well that God has loved you. Are you growing in holiness? If so, you are not ineffective. You are not unfruitful. Because to do these things is to have the affirmation of Jesus Christ that he has saved you for his purpose and for his glory and you are laboring with all of the strength that he provides. And this is Peter's conclusion today. The hope of Christian knowledge. Now, as I said, comfort and challenge are always interweaved in Peter's letters. And here we see this because there is a challenge. Peter provides a clear challenge to anyone who claims to be Christian. We read this challenge in verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities, so those are the eight qualities we just looked at, is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. To not have a life which increases in affection for God, personal holiness, and love for others, is to show that you might not be converted. To blindly think that your knowledge of Jesus saves you even when your life remains unchanged by him is by Peter's logic to have no knowledge at all. Contrary to you thinking you're smart, he's saying you're forgetful. Because while Jesus does save us from hell in the future, Peter's also emphasizing the wonderful truth that he has saved you from sin right now. That you have been given the ability to say no to sin because you see on the cross that sin deserves death. You see it in all of its grotesqueness. You see it in all of its violence. You see it in all of its inability to provide on the wonderful promises that it tries to give but cannot pay. And that's what conversion does. Conversion affirms that we have tasted that the goodness of Jesus is better than all of the foolishness of this world. It assumes that we've been given a new palate by being drawn into the divine nature of God instead of being ruled by the nature of this world. So Peter's logic, listen to this, is really tight. To know Jesus means you don't forget that he has cleansed you from sin. To see Jesus is not to be blind to the calls for holiness. There is a challenge that we ought to heed in looking at our life. But if those things are present, where Peter actually lands the plane for this church in anxiety is actually in the realm of confidence. 
The confidence that can come only from the gospel of Jesus. Look at verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail or never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is unmistakable in this text that what Peter is after is the conduct of Christians. And Peter's point is that true knowledge of Jesus conforms you to be more like him and less like the world. There is an obligation that comes in knowing Jesus to be like Jesus, but this is where the gospel brings relief to our souls because what does he call Christians to confirm? If you look down, it's their calling and election. All of the qualities he's asking you to do exist to confirm your calling and election. Well, who has called Christians and who has elected Christians? Look at verse 3. His, that is God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. It is God who calls believers. We saw this also in his first letter. Remember this identity that Peter is giving to his people in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, do you hear this conversion he's talking about? A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is after your actions. And Peter is saying that your actions provide you hope that one day you will not get there and find that you were canceled for lack of knowledge or conformity. But ultimately, as the root of your actions, Peter shows us that it is all built upon the work of Jesus to call us and to save us. In verse 4, he says that this wonderful Jesus has granted you escape from the world. And in verse 11, that same Jesus provides richly for you entrance into his kingdom. Meaning that Jesus gives you the power both to escape sin and to enter into his kingdom. Because Jesus has delivered you from sin, you have been empowered by him to live in obedience to him. No gift is spared from you. No power withheld in your resistance to sin. Because Jesus has covered you in his glory and excellence, your ability to furnish your faith in, you have the ability to furnish your faith in a way which it will not fall. You can endure. You can choose to obey despite how hard it might seem because this Jesus and the astounding quality of this Savior stands behind you. Which means this, dear weary or doubting Christian, when you assess your life and you look at the cascade and find it to be but a trickle, Peter's calling you to look at Christ. Look at this Christ who is not merely an affirmation of your mind, but transforms you by his glorious grace. Peter is not after a works-based salvation. He's after a true salvation, which says you really are changed by his power, by his grace. When a believer looks at what Jesus has done, they are reminded of the way in which their conversion equips them to live out a life of holiness, which pleases God and loves others. If you're not a believer in here today, watching online or sitting in here, I invite you to look at this Christ. This world will allow no comfort for any other hope. It will always leave you guessing, always leave you striving, always leave you anxious, but herein lies the grace of God and the comfort 
through Jesus. That he has done it. And he has equipped you to continue working for God's glory and loving others. And if you're a burden who feels burdened with the fight of sin and feels that you yourself are about to fall or that you cannot endure, look back at your calling and election. Look at what Christ has done. Look at what his blood was shed for. Look at his Holy Spirit that now empowers you. Look at all the wonderful work of the Godhead poured out for you to say yes to Jesus and no to sin, and it will be provided richly for you entrance into the kingdom of God as you continue to be conformed more and more into his image. Charles Spurgeon was one who wrestled with spiritual depression and wrestled with assessing his own way. The prince of preachers wrestled with the pace of the world, and he knew that knowledge of Jesus was sufficient not just to humble us, but to comfort us and to console us in a way where we are encouraged to live in a right response. This is his word in closing. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there's a quietist for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there's a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity and you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak wounds, or so speak peace to the wounds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Dear Christians, we have an object of such a great musing that changes us and compels us to live for his glory even when things seem difficult and hard. So let us live in response to his salvation, bearing fruit and rejoicing in the effectiveness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that this church, scattered and isolated in different parts of our city due to the effects of sin in our world, that you would make us in our gathering and in our scattering effective, not because we are awesome, not because we've mastered anything, but because we have been mastered by you. Because Jesus has changed us by his grace on the cross, taking our sin and condemnation and giving us all things pertaining to life and godliness. So what I pray here that in this room, there is not a person who does not supplement their faith with virtue and their virtue with knowledge and their knowledge with self-control and their self-control with godliness and their godliness with brotherly affection and their brotherly affection with love. For these things ought to be ours and increasing so that we might be effective and fruitful in the knowledge of Jesus. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.